Welcome to The Other Side of Darkness, an episodic Seinfeld parody story that follows Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer on a dark and mysterious journey inspired by the work of David Lynch. The Other Side of Darkness is produced by Signpeaks. I'm Jesse, also known as Signpeaks, your host and narrator. You're listening to phase one of this podcast, in which I'll be speaking with cast and crew members from Seinfeld, sharing their stories and memories from the show. Phase two, the series itself, begins this fall. The Other Side of Darkness is brought to you in part by Daily Dale Cooper, your daily source for Twin Peaks fan content, photos, and artwork, on Instagram at Daily Dale Cooper. Today I'm speaking with Yul Vasquez, who appeared three times on Seinfeld as Bob, the intimidating street tough who terrorizes Kramer with his partner Cedric. Aside from over 100 acting credits over the past 30 years, Yul is also a guitarist, painter, and photographer. We talked about his musical roots, working with the late John Paragon on Seinfeld, and his upcoming project with Seinfeld writer David Mandel, HBO's The White House Plumbers. Stick around at the end for this week's featured musical guest, Andrew Reinhardt. Now, here is Yul Vasquez. Folks, I am here today with the great actor, and if all you know him as as an actor, you're about to know a whole lot more because he is also a musician, an artist, a painter, a photographer, and so much more. Mr. Yul Vasquez, Yul, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you, sir? Hey man, I'm I'm really good, and uh, I'm happy to be here. And I hope everyone out there is smiling. I think they're definitely smiling, listening to us right now. Um, you'll. I want to start off today by kind of taking us from the beginning with your career because you've done so much, and I want to figure out how you went from growing up in Miami to uh, a thirty-plus year film and TV career. Because I know that before that, you also had a career as a rock musician in two different uh, rock bands in the '80s, and I kind of want to figure out where did that path weave? How did you get started and, and how did you get to where you are today? You know, this, this is going to sound odd to people. Uh, I never set out to be an actor. Um, I, I like, like you mentioned, I played in bands. I played in bands uh, for a lot of my life. Um, I'm a guitar player. And uh, all my heroes as a kid, you know, I came from Cuba when I was two and a half. I was probably maybe like close to three years old with my mother uh, we immigrated to Miami, um, my mother and my sister and my grandmother and me. I was the youngest and, uh, and, and the only male. And uh, my mother, my mother, ha- my mother was an actress uh, in Cuba. And subsequently, when she came to Miami, she connected with a uh, with a group of, of exiled Cuban actors that had formed a theater company. And my mother started working in that theater company. And I was I was very young, maybe five, six years old, and I would get thrown into plays only because I was honestly like the default uh, child of that of that age range. But my heroes were British rock guitar players, you know, Jimmy Page, Brian May, Richie Blackmore. Oh yeah, and that's really that's where I wanted to go. You know what I mean? Um, I, I have a sister who's older than me, and my sister had a radio. There's there's a there's a moment. A galvanizing moment uh, for me when I was maybe about 11, 12 years old. My sister had a radio and it was on and it was on a dresser. And I, I never forget this as long as I live. I was coming out of the shower and, and I and I walk I walk by the radio, which is like an ear level because I was a little kid. And the middle section of a whole lot of love is playing, you know. So I, oh my God, yeah. and I was like, I, it literally stopped me. I was, wait, what's that? Because that's amazing. And then the guitar solo comes in and I go, check, please. <laughs> I was like, you know, whatever. I did that journey, uh, made records, played all over the place. And then um, I was in a band with a guy whose girlfriend worked for a talent agency here in, uh, here in New York City. And uh, Oliver Stone was casting the Doors movie. And uh, <laughs> it was so crazy. You can't, you can't even make this up. So she says to me, uh, hey, you know, I had really long hair. You know, I was a guitar player in a, in a rock band. She says to me, hey, you know, they're, they're casting this movie about the doors. You should come and talk to my boss. Her, her boss was the agent in charge of the office there. And uh, so I went over there to talk to her. You know, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I was just going to go and, you know, some guy with long hair, you know. And this woman named Holly Lebed, who I think, the truth about Holly Lebed, and, th- and everybody, anybody listening to this should actually know, know that. I wrote something on, on, on your Instagram page, and I said, if anybody out there has received any, any joy from anything that I've done as an actor, they should thank her first. Uh-huh. Because Holly Lebed looked at me and said, and with, with almost like amazement in her eyes at the, I guess, the sheer chutzpah of this rock guy in a talent agent office basically saying, 
hey, I want to audition for this Doors movie. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, she goes, listen, I don't know if you can act, but you you seem kind of interesting. And, uh, and she says to me, literally, I'll be your agent. I would be your agent, but you have, but if you, if you want to do this, you have to do this seriously. Hmm. And then she then connects me to an acting teacher called Bill Esper, who changes the course of my life. Wow. Uh, emotionally, psychically, you know, intellectually on, on every level, just sort of blows the, the, the top of my head off, you know, and then, and then something really wild so, starts to happen to me because I was in a band on Epic called Diving for Pearls at that time and Diving for right. Pearls, Epic had just dropped us and we were trying to shop a deal for, with another label when all this is happening and I'm studying with Bill Esper. So I start taking this acting class and I start to become a happier person than I was playing in the fucking band. So I realized I really, I was like miserable and kind of miserable in this band. You know what I mean? Towards that, especially at that time, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm taking this acting class and I'm like just thriving emotionally and sort of, you know, and um, the band gives me this ultimatum about being in the band or, or, or basically being an actor. I was, I wasn't even, I was just in an acting class. I, so I quit the band. That's that basically just to finish the story. I quit the band. I remember that cab ride in New York city, going up eighth Avenue, going home thinking, what the fuck have I just done? Wow. You know, I literally, what have I done? Talk about rolling the dice. Yeah. Six months later, I had my first job as an actor, which brings me directly to you and me here. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the journey really. Right. You know, I've not, I haven't been in a band since, and I, I am, I'm friends with a lot of guys in, in bands and in huge bands. And I, I played, you know, we, we jam and we, but I haven't been in a band in, in ages. And uh, I mean, I, I would be in a band again, you know? Um, yeah. It's funny. I saw Michael uh, Imperioli yesterday, who's a, you know, wonderful, brilliant actor. And he has a band, you know, he has a band in New York called, uh, called Zoya. Um, and uh, I thought, Hey man, it, it'd be cool to be in a band again, you know, like some cool band, you know? Um, yeah. Anyways, that's the story, man. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Like you said, <laughs> that, that took us to, to right here. You took a big chance and it completely changed the, uh, the course of your life over the next, you know, three decades and counting. Oh, you know, but I, I, I you, this is going off, of course, here a little bit, but I, I think life, I think the universe puts signposts in your, in your way sometimes. And you, you can, you can choose to not read the signpost or you can read the signpost and go like, and you're like, no, man, I'm going this way. I mean, and the sign's going, I, I need you to turn left. You know I mean, and you could not do it or you could, you know, um, there's a big psychic, like it, it, a guy who I think he was, uh, he's like stings psychic or or something this is like this is years ago years ago when i was playing in a band and somebody got me an appointment with them it was very hard to get an appointment i got an appointment with them it's crazy expensive you know went and i remember went to the gramercy park hotel and i went in there you know and he and he comes out you know and he's and this guy basically says to me he says to me that i'm going to be an actor and i almost and i started laughing i'm like i'm a guy in a band you understand look at me what are you saying to me? I'm gonna gonna be an actor. But he he kind of said that to me. It was bizarre. And I don't want to say anyways, you yeah. people can make can uh, take from that whatever they want, you know. Let's jump really quickly to 1995. So you've been in the acting game for a while at this point, and that's the point where you intersect with my world, which is the world of Seinfeld. Uh, you appeared in uh, the first time in the episode, The Soup Nazi, which I think was the seventh season of the show. Um, right. How did you wind up there? And, and what was that process like? It was really, I was only in about my third year of being an actor, which for an actor really, you know, is, is nothing. I mean, it takes, honestly, it takes 20 years to make an actor, you know, mm-hmm. really. You know, Sandy Meisner said that. People don't believe it. But it is actually true because it moves from here into here. And then that's a different, then the game changes. Hmm. Anyways, Holly Lebed calls me and says, I have a last minute audition. It's a true story. It was if one of those, you know, in LA, sometimes you, you literally like, you got to go now to CBS Radford. This character, this works tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, because that's how sometimes shows move at that speed. Somebody yeah. writes a new character. I think uh, uh, Spike, who wrote the Soup Nazi, uh, episode wrote that and uh, 
she goes, you, you have to go now. So I drive over to, I was living in LA at the time. So I go there and I get the sides, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at the sides and it's, um, the character's called Bob the Intimidating Gay Guy. That's all, that's all it's called. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this thing? You know? And, you know, I don't know, just like the muse descended, man. Uh, and I had this idea to basically do an, an impersonation of my mother. My mother was very intimidating and very intense woman and spoke with a, with a very heavy accent. And that's what I did. I, so I go in the room and I did that. And I remember, uh, uh, Jerry and Larry were sitting there and they, at the end of the scene, they looked at me and they're like, what the fuck was that? And I'm like, I said, it's my mom, you know? And they're like, can you, can you do it again? Do it again. So I did it again. And then they were like, they gave me some notes. I think I remember some notes. And then they've said basically, you know, wait outside. Cause did we they actually used to do that. Make actors wait outside. Mm-hmm. Like you'd be like, like six guys waiting. It's just really just, just cruel really, you know? <laughs> six guys waiting and they'd be like okay everybody else can go home um, you can stay you I mean and then sort of and then you've got then you have the job and then sometimes you go right to work like it's crazy especially wow. on these on these sitcoms because they work you know and seinfeld by that time was a very very well-oiled machine right so they had a four-day work week which was unheard of i mean mm-hmm. i mean they would rehearse you'd show up you'd rehearse you kibitz have some the craft service like i'd never seen in my life like every kind of olive oil i mean every it was <laughs> It was like, I mean, it was just an embarrassment of riches. You know I mean? It was a very wow. wealthy show, very successful show at that time. So they would just chill and read the paper, have a bagel, you know, talk. And then we'd rehearse a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's how it started. I got that and and I did the first one and it the thing took off. You know, the character took off. There was a, somebody told me there was, there was a gay bar in Chicago that would play and that would have the episodes, they'd play the scenes on, on a loop. Like, no kidding. It just had a life of its own. It just sort of took off. I mean, yeah. Rolling Stone called it like, it was like number 25, you know, the top 100 Seinfeld guests, you know, like it was like, it, it just sort of became this iconic. And, and, and as you mentioned earlier, I've been fortunate to have quite a long career, um, but people always want to talk about Seinfeld and people... Yeah. Always go. It happened the other day, man. I went in. I was buying. A, I think I was in Miami. I was in Miami. I was buying. I don't know, like a taco or something. And the guy goes, "Hey, man, I love you on Seinfeld." And I was like, "I go, hey, thanks, man. I mean, it hasn't been on the air in like, you know." Yeah. So it was the the power of that show. That power. That show had a very very long reach and insanely powerful. And then I and then I kept coming back. You know, I kept coming back and um and then, you know and there it is. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It, incredible. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all the rankings. I um, anytime I'm thinking of the guest characters, especially the recurring ones on Seinfeld, Cedric and Bob are always right at the top for me uh, as you know, as villains, really. And, and the way that they intimidate the characters every time it's 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 gold. Well, you said I, I, I have a, it's funny you said it because I have a um, when we were shooting the Puerto Rican Day Parade episode, which, as you know, is the second to last episode. Mm-hmm. I, I was almost in the last episode, too. Oh, in the finale. I was on hold for the last episode which would just would have been crazy, but yeah, I, I took that script and I, I never asked, I've never asked anybody to sign anything for me, but for some reason, I don't know, something said to me, have these guys sign it. So Jerry signed it and Michael Richards signed it. And Jerry wrote to the greatest Seinfeld villain ever. Oh yeah. And I have that script, it's in storage, um, but I'll cherish that for, uh, for forever. And I've seen Jerry after here in, uh, in New York, always like super nice and yeah so that's yeah but you mentioned john paragon i just thought i could take a moment i want to talk about john please do um, yeah we're uh I mean, we're all hurting i mean still a yeah. few months later having lost him yeah. back in april because you know the the i didn't you know when i got cast i didn't know who who cedric was and I, so i show up to work and it's john paragon and i was a huge peewee's playhouse fan you know so i knew john was you know and what's really crazy I'd never watched Seinfeld. I didn't know the show. I mean, I knew of the show, but I didn't know the show intimately. I, I hadn't, I didn't know the, you know, the mechanisms of the show. Yeah. But when I saw John, I was most excited because it was John. Cause I knew John be the genie, you know, I, I, that I knew, you know what I mean? And I just love John and I must've asked him a billion questions about Pee Wee. And he, John told me, 
He said he, he ran down because it was all came out of the groundlings. And John said, look, I watched him find the whole thing. You know, I watched him. He started and then I because I, I remember the day he brought the suit in, you know, and the suit was too small. And he basically watched Paul do it, like create it, you know, just like he watched um, Elvira sort of emerge from that whole thing. So, yeah, it was fascinating, man. And John was John was a titan. Um, you know, I'm so sad that I, you know, that he's gone. Um, I wish I could have done more with him. I would have loved to have worked with John again. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. What a loss. Um, but yeah, incredible that you were able to team up with him on three occasions uh, and, and create some really memorable television together. I mean, it's, it's magic seeing the two of you guys on screen together. Well, thank you, man. Absolutely. Well, well thank you uh, for saying all that, uh, Yule. I, I do want to talk about a project that you're working on right now that I'm really excited about. And a lot of my listeners are going to be excited about. You are teaming up with uh, Seinfeld writer and, I mean, just an amazing showrunner, David Mandel, uh, who did incredible work on Veep. And he is working with you on uh, a series called The White House Plumbers um, yes. about the Watergate scandal and, and all of that. I'm really excited about this. You're playing Bernard Barker, who was one of uh, Nixon's hired burglars, uh, CIA operatives, that kind of thing. Are you allowed to talk about this? Like, can you tell me a little bit about the series, about what you're doing on the show? I mean, I mean, you know how Watergate ends. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, it's written. So, <laughs> you know, it happened. I mean, this is all kind of a matter of record. I mean, there's a, I, I can tell you I can tell you some things. I, you know, obviously, some, some things that. I, you know, just for the sake of protecting the show, I won't say, but listen, I, th I think we're having a lot of fun doing it. We're, our, I can't say enough what, how big a genius I think David is. David has given some notes recently that are so, his understanding of comedy is absolutely staggering. You know, like these sort of timing notes that are brilliant, you know, that that's a rhythm thing, but I love working with him. He's great. It's insanely well-written and the cast is Ridiculous, you know. Woody Harrelson yeah. is playing Howard Hunt. Justin Thoreau is playing Gordon Liddy. Tony Plana is playing Musculito. Alexis Valdez, uh, who's a very, very funny guy from Miami, is playing De Diego. Nelson Asensio is playing uh, Billo, and I'm and I'm playing Barker. Uh, and Toby Huss, ah uh, yeah, is playing is playing McCord. Oh wow! And so just imagine it's 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 you know it's very much in that David Mandel, you know. The sets are amazing. The whole thing, it's a great period. The guy shooting it is brilliant. It's a guy that I did uh, the Che Guevara movie with, a guy called Steven Meisler. He's uh, hmm. a great DP, shot Queen's Gambit. Anyway, so it looks, it's got all the right pieces. You know what I mean? And, you know, I think it's going to be great. Next year is the 50th anniversary of Watergate, so... Hmm. Anything? I don't. What else can I tell you about it? Um, well, um, I noticed. I mean, you mentioned that you're working with Justin Thoreau. Uh, I think a, a few of my listeners' ears perked up when you when you said that because uh, I got a lot of David Lynch fans in the audience, and of course, he did some great work with Lynch on uh, Inland Empire and Mulholland mm -hmm. Drive. Uh, do you have any interaction with him? Are you in any scenes with uh, with Liddy's character? I'm not really. I'm not a history buff, so I can't remember exactly how close the interactions were between these. All the figures. scenes are with. Um, uh, with Justin and uh, Woody, because it's a lot of the burglar, you know, a lot of the yeah. breakings. And yeah, Thoreau's a wonderful actor. But you know, the thing I've known Justin probably twenty years. You know, mm -hmm. we've been friends, so we've never worked worked together. Um, he's doing some amazing work in this. Um, I think you, everybody's going to be uh, really, really blown away by this. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's a great guy, and he's. Um, I just, I, I enjoy working with them. It's, it's, there's a great vibe, you know what I mean? There's, there's a great vibe. I, I, I spend, I have a massive transformation in the show. I mean, it's very lengthy. It's like three hours in the chair. Wow. Which is, it takes half an hour to take it off. Oh my God. Oh yeah, no, it's a whole thing, man. It's a whole thing. You know, if oh, you know what yeah. Barker looks like hmm. and, and you know what I look like, you'll, you'll know, but, um, you know, it's an incredible story and just sort of diving into this. It's, I've been fascinated with the story for a while because my uncle was in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Hmm. Barker was a Bay of Pigs, was one of Hunt's Bay of Pigs guys. So there's a personal aspect uh, to this. My, my uncle Ray was a, was a veteran and a, and a political prisoner in, hmm. in Cuba. And it's insanely timely with everything that's happening right now in, uh, in Cuba. So I wear a Bay of Pigs ring in the show and I'm so honored 2506 Brigade. I'm so honored to wear that ring. So, yeah. Gotcha. Incredible, yeah. incredible connection there. Um, do you know, have they 
I mean, I guess there isn't a release date yet because you're still filming it. Are they looking at uh, next year? You know, I'm going to imagine because it's the 50th anniversary. Yeah. So I imagine it'll be next year. I think next year, I think the Ben Stiller thing I did will also come out next year too. I'm not sure when that's going to come out, but that should be really interesting too. Again, another very high concept show. Gotcha. I'm not, I'm not familiar with this. What is this, uh, this Ben Stiller project? Called Severance. Okay. It's for Apple TV. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and Ben Stiller's directing it uh, and producing and it's Adam Scott and Chris Walken and oh my god, Patricia Arquette and Torturo, Michael Chernis. I mean, it's just, just the cast is just insane. And working with Ben is, you know, he's amazing. He's a, he's a you know demanding director, but like you trust him completely because you know he's he'll deliver you to the to the promised land, as they say. You know what I mean, so so you go, you'll you'll go, you'll let him take it to the mat you know it's great it's great i love ben so much and it's another guy i've known for uh for a while as well it's just interesting big guy i had a chance to work you know if you hang around long enough you you wind up working with a lot of your friends and yeah i've been fortunate i've i've had uh, repeat customers at the uh yule acting store uh, yeah gotten to work uh, you know noah bushell i've done three movies with him um brett Furman, i've done three films with him and you know soderbergh i've done a couple and mm-hmm. So you, 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 you have relationships, you know what I mean? And you yeah. wind up working with people that you, that you like. Um, I've just met this wonderful director, Tracy Lehman, uh, getting a lot of heat for Ghosted, her short Ghosted and Mixed Signals, and she's winning a lot of stuff. And I'm hoping to make something with her. So, you know, it's, you know, I always say if, if, you, if you hang around this business long enough and you haven't been a jackass to people and you show up and you do your work and you don't make trouble, you have friends, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's cool i uh so i grew up watching stiller stuff i mean i you know i grew up i was born in 90 so kind of coming up as a kid kind of in the as his stuff was you know not just mm-hmm. stuff he was acting in but as he became a director as well yeah. um walter mitty uh, honestly it's not maybe not one of his most famous movies but it's one i enjoyed tremendously um and yeah just a very very skilled uh skilled creator i think oh my god in- and incredibly detailed like yes. you know incredibly detailed just in his direction and, 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 and all the different sort of uh, choices that he wants to arm himself with when he goes to edit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so you'll do it, you know, 50 times to Tuesday, but you know, and, and cause he wants to have every, every nuance. So he, you know, and he's so smart and he's so good. He's such, he's such a good actor and he's such a great director. I mean, escape at Denimora is unbelievable. You know I mean? Um, so it's, you know, you, you don't get to, work with great directors all the time and it's a crazy thing to say but it's just the fucking truth um and i've been very blessed lately you know yeah with ben and david smart clear directors you know directors that know that there's no they know exactly what they what they want it's just clear direction you know what i mean there's no yeah. ambiguity in that, you know which is the best thing you can hope for from a director Right. Yeah. I, I can definitely, I can definitely see that. Um, you'll tell me a little bit about your art. You're both a, a painter and a photographer and I was checking out your work and I mean, not only is it great work, but it's very distinctive work. Like it's, it's not something that someone else would have done. It's like, it's very you, it seems like it comes from a personal place. And I want to figure out like, is this something recent for you? Have you always been in a painting photography? What are you doing with it? Photography has been in my life since I was very, very young. My, I remember my mother bought me a, a camera. It was 75 cents at a thrift store in Miami Beach when I was, I was young. So I, and I still have that camera. So I've always had cameras. I have a, more cameras than really, you know, I, I'm a camera nerd, to be quite honest with you. In fact, most of my favorite people on sets are all the camera guys, uh-huh. which, is why, which is why I mentioned Meisler, because I, I you know, love the technology and anyway, so I've, I've had a camera for a long time and I've been taking pictures, but in, but about 12, 15 years ago, I started to really take photos with a, with a point of view. And I just started to take pictures and, and I would, uh, I would send them to folks, you know, I didn't show them to anybody. I sent them a couple of people that I trusted and people were saying, you know, you're onto something here. You know what I mean? People that I, people that I trusted, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, so I just went with it. You know what I mean? I went, went with it. And then when I wasn't out, taking pictures, I started to draw. Yeah. And small, you know, and, and then that sort of started to take off. And then somebody said, go, you should go bigger. And then, and then I went bigger. Then I, I did a collaboration of some pieces with, with a friend. And then from there it went, and now it's, and then people started buying the art. Uh-huh. Uh, it was, that really blew my mind. 
but you're it does come from a place you know um it does come from a place a lot of the imagery and sort of the you know iconography of, of the art is comes from my my childhood my mother was uh into very into a lot of alternative religions in my house that had a lot of symbolism and had a lot of uh iconography you know it, it had it had uh in the in the religion they're called in Spanish, they're called garabatos. In English, that would translate to scribbles, like literally. But it's the powers are speaking in the scribble. And sometimes in magic, in Western magic, they're called they're called uh, sigils. Anyways, a lot of the art has sigils. You know, like mm-hmm. my like this iPhone case. It has all that stuff. All that stuff. This is all. That's all basically what. That's what I'm talking about. Gotcha. Yeah. So. That's all throughout the art. And then I'm fascinated with stuff that looks like it was maybe done by, um, by a child. You know what sure. I mean? I'm into the work of Cy Twombly, who did these scribbles. And anyways, so that's kind of where it comes from. And then it just took off. And then what I loved about painting was that there was no, you know, and, and photography, there was no, I don't have any editor. I don't have a director. Right. Um, I also have, I'm not, I don't do good with edit buttons in my own personal life, mm-hmm. which gets me into, into trouble <laughs> sometimes, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm my mother's son, you know, my mother suffered no fools, you know, I, you know, when I was younger, I did, but like a day came and I was like, no, man, I'm going to cancel your fucking contract. You mean, mm-hmm. no. so, so, you know, so, um, in the artist, literally, I go into my studio, which is which is not in New York; it's in Miami. Um, but I go in there, and uh, and I, it's direct line. There's no director, there's no editor, there's no writer. It's just me, me and the and the blank space. You know what I mean? Or sometimes I start from a photograph. You know, I, I printed these photo. I have a bunch of photographs I've printed. Uh, one of Tesla that I'm found, that I'm working on. One of Jimi Hendrix that I I posted. I think a collage of, uh, on it. Um, anyways. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. That's where the art comes from. I don't know where it's going. Yeah. But that's where it comes from. Hey, I mean, that's sometimes that's the best way to get someplace new, you know? Uh, hey, man, I don't know where I'm going. Yeah, exactly. Hell yeah. I mean, I, I'm not even kidding. You know, I actually did a piece that was a picture of me and I wrote, if you find this guy, tell him. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was like, yeah. who the fuck am I? I don't even, you know, I was like, I was so, I, you know. I think when we find out who we are or when we know where we're going, I think it's game over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, and, and kind of what spoke to me was looking at on your photography, you have a series of uh, airport photos and airlines and, you know, in planes and stuff. And that's, uh, I mean, I'm an amateur pho- photographer, like I'm not anything good or professional, but that's one of my favorite places to take photos is in an airport because it is such a, it's sort of an in-between place, you know, you're going somewhere, it's, it's a journey, it's liminal, it's, you know, it's a passageway. And that's kind of what was speaking to me through those photos was like different people at different stages of some journey with some destination in mind or not in mind. It's very interesting stuff. Yes. I think you, you hit on what the thing about airports for me, I spend a lot of time in them is, you know, is that they're, they're charged. They're very emotionally charged because somebody's traveling to go to a funeral, somebody's traveling to go to a wedding, somebody's traveling to go on vacation, some someone is traveling to go pick up a, a child that, that they're adopting. You know, it's all that. Yeah. All that is in one fucking airplane or in one terminal. Yeah. Where you, you walk by, you know, I've seen guys praying. I've taken photos of guys. I think, I think they're in there. They're praying. There's a photo of a man. It's, it's in his back and he's just looking at a window and it looks like a businessman and he looks like something is going on with him. You can't see his face, but he looks troubled. You know, he looks, I think airports are, they're filled with that. I, I remember traveling twice in my life because of a death. And it, those are horrible, horrible plane rides. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But all that is, is in an airport. You know? yeah. <laughs> and people laughing and, you know, and a young couple going on whatever, honeymoon. I don't, you know what I mean? It's all kids. Yeah. So I think it's charged. So I just, you know, I walk around, I try, I shoot a lot of stuff surreptitiously, you know, and, and then some folks catch me at taking the photo. I noticed that. Yeah. There's a moment when before the photo's taken, they realize the photo's about to be taken. They're kind of like their guard is down for a second because it ta- in a second their guard is up and now they know they're being photographed. But yeah. you have to be careful because it get you in trouble, you know? Sure. I shoot with wide lenses. So I have to, I got to get close to people. Yeah. 
<laughs> people don't like that. I know. Oh. No, I know. I know. Uh, I know exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what you, you know, because you because you do it. You're sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Trying to like keep the camera low, make it look like maybe you're just yeah. looking at something. And then, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, what I've been doing lately is I'm shooting with a Mamiya 330, which is, you know, which is a TLR. So what that does in a way, the camera itself is a conversation piece and it's an icebreaker. Uh-huh. Particularly in this day and age, the camera, I mean, it's so heavy. If I fell in the, in the ocean with this camera, I'd sink to the bottom. <laughs> so you have this giant hunk of metal and you go up to somebody and you go, may I take your picture? And when they see you with that thing, it looks like, oh, this guy's serious. You know what I mean? It, it has yeah. some weight to it. And they're like, my God, what kind of cameras? And I go, it's an old film camera. It's a medium format film camera. And then that's sort of like, cause that's a portrait. Now we know what we're both doing. Mm-hmm. And I love the TLR, you know, because the, the taking lens is the bottom lens and the lens on top is the focusing lens. Mm-hmm. So this idea to tell people, here's what I want you to do the bottom lens is only only sees you and you see it. I look at you through the top lens. So tell the bottom lens a secret. You don't want anybody to know. Huh. And then it'll be in the camera. The secret will be inside the camera. I'm focusing. So and they're like, OK, cool, we'll do that. And they're like and they just do it. You know I mean, and it's yeah. And then I have I have fun. They have fun. And, you know, it doesn't look like I, I don't get punched in the face, which listen, right. some people have been like, hey, man. Would you take my fucking picture? You know what I mean? Right. Because I walk by and I go, boom. And I'll just like, because I, I mm-hmm. move fast. Like, yeah. it's, you know, and I shoot mainly, usually very simple cameras mm-hmm. because you have to. You have, because you're, it's a running gun jam. But yeah. I've slowed down now with, with the medium format. And it's, it's changing the images. The images, I have a lot of film, I bag of film I have to develop. Um, anyways, we, I, we went off on a photographic tangent. No, but I, I'm here for we're, it. We're both camera nerds. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's just something very special about creating a relationship, two people and a camera in the middle and uh, seeing how they're going to react to that intermediate kind of space there. Um, but yeah, yeah, it sounds like you've got kind of a cool way of going about it. And like like I said, the end result is something really unique. And uh, for the folks listening, after you listen to this episode, go to the show notes of this podcast and you'll find a link to Yule's website where you can find all of that stuff. It's, I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. Thank you, man. Thank you for saying that. I mean, as a, I'm a guy that like, I understand how it feels to have artistic outputs and to not be satisfied by just one of those. It, it seems like you're that guy, like you're an actor, but you, you've also got this musical side and you've got this side of taking it into a visual space. And um, I'm fascinated by that, by artists that are not restricting themselves to uh, to one thing. And it's really cool to see kind of all those different parts of you kind of coming out in different ways. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, man. I, I think it all feeds, you know, the other one, you know, yeah. the, the photos feed, the acting, acting feeds, you know, it's all, it's all a, uh, it's a smoothie, if you will. Uh, yeah. And I think you have to, Maynard, Maynard James Keenan, who's a singer for Tool, says, you know, Ben called Pussifer. He has a great quote. He says, life's too short to, life is too short to not create something with every breath we draw. But I think it's true. I mean, I think, yeah. and it is short, you know, and I've been, you know, creating, making stuff since I, I can remember. So I, I, I don't understand when I see, when I hear people that, you know, kids that are like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I'm like, how the fuck do you know, man? I knew mm-hmm. what I wanted to do, you know, I mean, but maybe I was just lucky, you know, and I had a mother who was like, Hey, you know, listen, my, my father was a, my father was a surgeon, you know, not, not, neither my sister or I ever went into medicine. And my mother said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I want to, I'm going to play drums. I'm going to play guitar. She's like, great. Just be fucking good at it. Uh-huh. I mean, like there's no point doing it. If you're not going to be, you know, like do it, do it well. So, and she gave me the rope. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She, you know, I was either going to hang myself with it uh-huh. or I was going to climb. Thank God. Yeah. So far it's, uh, you know, it's been a climb, you know, it's been, it's been a climb. I, I say, I mean, not, not that I want to die, but if I die tomorrow, it was a good run, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Um, you'll, do I have time to give you a few questions that some of my listeners have asked me to ask you? Uh, they'll be real quick. Yeah, sure, man. All right. So uh, I've got a Russian doll fan uh, in the audience. Her Instagram name is Tosh Olay. She asked if you may be returning for season two of Russian doll. I'm not. My deal with Russian doll was was one season and I enjoyed doing it. Um, I enjoyed everyone there and, and Natasha and everyone. But no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. 
Okay, cool. So uh, my next one, I think you've already answered this, but Monique Manet asked if you are currently or in the future uh, have plans to to play in any bands. I would like to. Does Monique want to start a band with me? I'll find out. <laughs> I'll send her a message. I'll, <laughs> I'll see about that. Uh, but, you know, while, while we're thinking about well, that. By the um, way, speaking of yeah. talented photographers, she's insanely talented photographer. Okay. Oh, so you know who I'm talking about. Fantastic. Yep. Okay. Um, while we're talking about music, I saw that uh, this was a few years ago, I guess back in 2006, you did a set with Ian Astbury from The Cult. Uh, did you know him from back in your music days? How did that come about? I met Ian. Uh, that's another amazing story. Ian had been an, a hero of mine for a long time, man. You mean, uh, I'm a huge cult fan. This is a crazy story. I, I, had, I was at my uh, voiceover agent's office and I saw uh, a card for a play uh, by John Patrick Shanley, a production of a play, and it said produced by Ian Asbury. And I was like, how many Ian Asbury's could this be? Right. So I said, who, who put this here? And I, so I went to, and I found the agent who put it, says, yeah, that my, my client is doing the play, Ian's producing the play. And I go, is this the Ian Asbury? She's like, yeah. I go, I would love to meet that guy. She's like, well, I'll, I'll arrange a dinner. So we went to dinner with him and he was amazing. I was like, it couldn't have, couldn't have been nicer. I mean, this is like over 10 years ago. And we became friends. That night, I think I went to his house and we jammed and we just like, I knew all the cult, I knew a lot of cult songs. I always say Ian has taught me more about art than I think anyone. His, his aesthetic, his, his design, his design uh, aesthetic is, it's incomparable, man. His knowledge of clothing and garments and, and just, I mean, he's the guy's, the guy's a fucking genius. I mean, you know, he just is. I mean, he's incredible. So, you know, we know him as a singer for the cult, but that brain is, you know, and then we, we just connected on so many, we connected on so many different levels. You know, mm -hmm. we have, we love many, many of the same ideas and he's a dear friend to this day and he will be for, you know, the rest of my life. I, I, I love that guy dearly. Nice. Uh, you know, well, I had a personal question while we're talking about the music side, you know, listening to some of your stuff with Diving for Pearls, I got hints of, uh, I mean, you mentioned Jimmy Page, Brian May, a lot of those guys from the 70s and where that kind of went for me, because I'm a, I'm a big rock fan. You reminded me a little bit of Joe Satriani and kind of those guys that took the blues and fused it with a heavy metal sound. And but there's still kind of a clean tone to it as well. So I'm interested as a guitarist, who were some of your biggest influences? Well, Jimmy Page is number one. I, oh, yeah. I wouldn't play the guitar if it wasn't for Jimmy Page. And and he's just been, you know, um, then Richie Blackmore, mm -hmm. Purple, huge fan. Brian May of Queen. I remember seeing Queen play live and and it altering the like the I never saw Led Zeppelin. I I, I, I was too was too young. Yeah. Uh, I missed that. I wish I had seen Led Zeppelin, you know. Right. But damn, to see Queen live, holy cow! I saw Queen. I saw Queen three times actually. Um, but I was I was the right I was the right age to have to have seen Queen. I mean, so yeah. The first time I saw Queen change the course of my life, I just you know. And the first time I heard that guitar because the, the unique sound of his guitar that he that he made with his father, as you know, and the whole the components that make up that Brian May tone. So that was big big influence on me. I love the guy called Bill Nelson from. Uh, Bebop Deluxe, a band from England, you may not know, but uh, I loved, uh, then I got into Randy Rhodes a lot, you know. Oh my God, Randy Rhodes. Yeah, and I, I, I'm good friends with Rudy Zarzo who played. Uh, yeah, I played with uh, with Randy and Ozzy. I saw that you tagged him yeah. uh, in, a, in a post the other day. That's that's uh, awesome. I've, I've known Rudy, uh, Rudy Sarza's name and his music for a little while now. Yeah, very talented guy. You should interview that guy. He's he's Cuban, you know, all, all, uh -huh. you know, all the Cubans, you know, we all we all know each other. Um, uh, <laughs> Cuban. Um, there's a lot of guys in rock people don't realize. Kaz Candler, the guitar player for the Romantics, is Cuban. Another guy that I. Oh, okay. But um, so you know, then and then later I discovered other guys, other guys that I should have probably have been into when I was younger. They sort of came around later. I got very much into Hendrix. Um, mm. It's funny you mentioned Satriani because uh, that that's actually odd to me. Um, I've never heard that before. But uh, if you if you listen to some of the like, some of the stuff I did with Urgent, uh, the second Urgent record was produced by Tom Allum, who did all the Judas Priest records. Ah, okay. And that's how that's how we got Tom because I had I was very tight with 
with the guys in Judas Priest. I knew Halford again, still. Oh my God. I love my, Rob Halford. One of my friends, he's still a dear friend. You know, he's a, a Titan, an icon. So that's how I knew Tom. So we brought, when RJ was going to do the second record, we brought Tom in. Working with him was my favorite time ever making a record because Tom is a guitar producer. The other two records, the Dying for Pearls record and the first Urgent record, I did not enjoy making, um, which mm -hmm. is sad because the, the first Urgent record is my first record. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of an awful time. Um, and the Dying for Pearls record was kind of an awful time too. But the second Urgent record with Tom Allen was heaven because I was sitting with a guy that loved guitars. Yeah. So we layered, there's a song that has like 30 guitars in harmony, which was like, it had like this sort of orchestral, you know, we did... We did so many things. We just, we had so much fun and we experimented and his, Tom's knowledge of music and, and his, his, you know, like, you know, sonic ideas are, were, are just incredible. You know, his work with not just Judas Priest, but with Def Leppard and yeah. all the bands that, you know, Lover Boy. Mm -hmm. So that record, you would, you would hear the style changing a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But yeah, I could, yeah, I can, I can understand. I can understand. And, and I, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not a Satriani fan. I, I just, I'm not super familiar with his work, but from some of the stuff yeah, I've heard. I'm not heard, either, actually. I, I, yeah. I'm, I don't really know Satriani's work. I, I never got into Satriani. I, right, I, but he started playing around the same time you were playing. So he was kind of a contemporary. And then kind of from him came like your Steve Vise well, he, and you know, guys like that. He's before me. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you're right. Satriani and Vi, they're really before me. And Vi, you know, when I started, Vi was already Vi. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's funny. Joe was Vi's teacher. Right, yeah. It's kind of what makes Satriani is his relationship with Steve Vai. Mm -hmm. But Steve Vai was playing in, in, in Zappa's band at 15. Yeah, you're right. Which is like Neil Sean was playing with Santana. Exactly. You, you made me think of that. Yeah. That's almost incomprehensible. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I could do a whole other podcast just about music, talking about these guys with you, because that's like that's my second passion. Listen, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in here, man. And it's yeah. all not good. No, <laughs> no I mean, <laughs> It's a lot, you know, it's a lot to unpack. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, but man, that, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's a wild ride. Thank you for taking that detour with me because that's some fun stuff. You're going to, you're going to have some editing to do. Dude, I'm just going to leave all of this in. Man. Oh, cool. All right. Well, cool. We'll leave it off. If people dig it, they dig it. If they don't, whatever. Fuck it. Leave it in, man. Hell yeah. All right. So I got one more question for you, Yul, yeah, uh, from a listener. So his username is WillMiami76. He asked me first. He wants to know what it was like working on A-Team and American Gangster. Side note, I think my connection dropped here because Yule thought I was asking about Bad Boys 2 instead of the A-Team. And, and the second one may be kind of a, a, a long thing, so it depends on how, how much you want to go into it. But he asks, how was it growing up as a Cuban-American here in America? I mean, uh, do, you know, doing Bad Boys 2 and American Gangster are I mean, they're two very different films, but, you know, Bad Boys 2 was... Uh, very hard film to make. Very took five months. Mm. A lot of action. You know, th th those things are hard. Um, but it was a movie that did a lot for me professionally. You know. Yeah. Um, same with American Gangster. The thing, the thing about American Gangster, I wasn't, I was not supposed to be in American Gangster. I was, hmm. I was shooting, I was in Los Angeles shooting another movie, shooting Brad Furman's first movie, actually. Okay. Which is great. Uh, anyways, somebody drops out of that movie, and Avi Kaufman who I know very well, a casting director, uh, and is a friend and, you know, a brilliant casting director, one of the greatest, calls my agent and says, we need him, like, we want you all to do, it. they're offering me this part, you know? And I I was like, how do, well, I can't, how are we gonna do this? I mean, this is gonna be, you know, there was an overlap and then I was finishing Brad's movie and then I could, then I could remain in New York and finish Gangster. Yeah. So we, so four nearly killed me and I've done this a couple of times. I would work in LA and I'd take the red eye to New York and I'd go right to work in the summer. And we were shooting winter and during the summer in like leather coats. I remember one day I almost passed out, like my blood sugar. I was like, my electrolyte, I was dehydrated. Ugh. I was just exhausted. And I did that for like a few times for like, I think for like two or three weeks. And then I finished Brad's movie and then I could sort of stay on Gangster. But Gangster, Gangster was great. It was great to work with Ridley. It was great. You know, I like I say, if you show up to work and you, and you do your job well and you don't make trouble, you'll have friends. And I remain friends with Russell Crowe from, from since then. And he's been very kind to me and, and insanely generous with me. And in fact, bought, bought me the most beautiful rap gift anybody's ever given me. It's bought me this this 
1962 reissue Dotneck 335 hmm. Gibson Custom Shop. I mean, Ooh. stunning guitar, stunning guitar. Because we would sit in his trailer and play guitar, so he knew I played guitar. Yeah. So he's like, "That's for you." And I was like, <laughs> you know, speechless. Uh, That's cool. Just, anyways, you know. But the, they were great to make. They were great to make. They, they, they all. You know, I, I've had a, a slow and steady career. You know, and I, and it's, it's great. You know, rather than you know, burn out and fade away. And I sort of built it. And I, I always feel that that it's accumulative. You know, sometimes you think nobody's paying attention. But they are paying attention. Oh yeah. Or yes, you know, sometimes they let you know that they were paying attention. So that's been my trajectory, whatever you want to call it. And I'm grateful for it. I, I have uh, I have a reminder set on my phone. In fact, it just went off a minute ago because it's three o'clock here. It's called Moment of Gratitude, and it's literally like just sort of checks you and goes like, "Hey man, you know what? You're okay. Like mm-hmm. shit's crazy, but whatever. You're you're good." Yeah. And what was it like growing up Cuban American? I mean, that, that's a, that's a wide, I mean, it is, it was, you know, growing up with one foot in one culture and, and the other foot in another culture is, is a hard thing, but it does something to you. You know, Spanish is my first language. I learned English when I went to school, you know, uh, there was racism when I was a kid, I saw it, you know, um, you know, growing up with a Spanish name sometimes wasn't the best thing, you know, even, even now it can prevent you from, uh, you know, yeah. Even though, I don't know, but it, it was, you know, I, it, it was okay, man. I'm like, I told you way in the beginning of this, all my heroes as a child were British guitar players. So the last thing I wanted to be as a kid was Cuban. I wanted to be British. You know what I mean, I wanted to be fucking Jimmy Page. And I, <laughs> so I dressed like Jimmy Page and I, my hair was like Jimmy Page. And, you know, and then later in life, I began to to fold in my 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 Cubanness and and it's a huge part of me and it's a switch I throw yeah you know hundred percent turbo Cuban in a second and turbo Anglo in another you know in fact yeah. in in plumbers I switch you know Barker spoke unaccented English hmm. he was Cuban yeah so I switch in the show there's no accent hmm. I mean it's just English and then he switches right to Spanish with the other guys so it's it's an interesting thing to do yeah i hope that answers his question i think it does i, I think it definitely does and, and i mean like you said you know, you start off wanting to be this one person and then as you get older you kind of certain parts of yourself come back to you i mean I, that my philosophy is you, you spend your whole life you know becoming who you are you know to be the person that you were all along and um i mean i'm i'm just this 30 year old baby over here uh, but that's a lesson I'm learning now. And that's something that we never stop doing. So no, I think, I think we are works in progress mm-hmm. as we go, as we go along. Man. Hell yeah. That's what we are, you know? And I, I think all we can do is try and do the best we can on the run, make the, make the best use of the time. You know, Yeah. like I said to you earlier, you know, if I died tomorrow, it was a good run. I mean, I've had like three lives. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've gone into two careers that are virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. earn a living in make a diamond that's why i have a moment of gratitude reminder on my phone man because mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of good fortune that comes in, in that's involved in this you know i mean you can be yeah i know guys that are insanely talented that will nobody will ever know who they are they just won't i mean i've seen guys in plays in regional theaters that are monster actors yeah and then my next thought was like no one will ever know who he is hmm. he will stay here i mean yeah and so what decides all those things in our lives? You know, mm-hmm. what forces guide us, man? I don't know. Yeah. So I have to be grateful. Well, I mean, it's a, it's mindfulness, you know, that, that kind of bringing it back to the moment, not getting stuck in the anxieties of the future and all that stuff. I mean, because you could reach the pinnacle, you could be at the top. And if you're not stopping to take those moments of gratitude, I mean, you're still going to be miserable and it's not going to mean a damn thing. So, I mean, the fact that you're doing that, that's something I strive to do every day. And uh, it's hard to do, but it's worth it. You got to do it. Listen, I've worked with guys that are at the top, top that are unhappy sons of bitches. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm like, all that. And like, and you're just a, you know, you're just kind of a jackass. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, <laughs> I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So you'll as uh, as we close out here, because I don't want to keep you all day. You're a busy guy. I wanted to take a minute and give you a chance. I do this with all my guests. If there are any charities that are near and dear to your heart, anyone that's doing advocacy work or nonprofit stuff that's helping people out in the world. If there's anyone you're a fan of or involved in, I mean, the floor is yours. If there's anyone you want to promote and I can share links and all kind of stuff. What I would like right now is for, for people, you know, hashtag SOS Cuba, you know, to support the people in Cuba fighting for their freedom. The first time in, in 60 years that this up this has happened in, in Cuba, the people have taken to the streets. They've had enough. That right now, that right now is what's very important to me. Gotcha. I'll share that in the description of the podcast as well. Uh, well, so you'll, um, last thing, and then I'm going to let you go. You've got a certain amount of listeners. I'm not exactly sure, you know, when they're listening, uh, but then, you know, 30,000 plus people that I'm going to share this with uh, when it's published that were impacted in some way and that have gotten laughs and happiness uh, at the very least out of your role as Bob on Seinfeld and uh, of course on so many other projects. Is there anything that you would want to leave as a last message as a word to them? Um, I just want to thank them for embracing that character. You know, um, it's a character that is, is he, he's out there, but he stands up for himself. I mean, the, I, I love the clarity of Bob. You know what I mean? I mean, I, and I love clarity in human beings. Um, but thank you for anybody that, um, that cared about Bob and, and uh, um, all the people that, that stopped me and say, Hey man, I, uh, you know, I love you. You know, yeah. it, it all, you know, and, and, it, and it's really kind of, you know, you know, my mother was a central figure in my life and the, and the only parent I've ever had. And my mother's gone. So th- when I tell you that is an impersonation of my mother, that in some way, my mother lives in Bob. Wow. <laughs> kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh man, how cool is that? Yeah, that's it's a anytime I see one of those episodes come on TV or I'm streaming it on Hulu or something, that's I stop and and I enjoy it. And now that I know that, I'm gonna enjoy it even more. Um, damn, that's cool. Yeah. Well, you'll you've shared so much with me in the past hour. Uh, I've had a hell of a time. I really enjoyed this, and I know that folks are gonna enjoy it as well. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for giving us the time. Thank you for giving us everything you've given us in film and TV and music and photography and, and painting. And uh, cannot wait to see the White House plumbers as well as Severance uh, when those hit Apple TV and HBO next year. Um, so, folks, everything we talked about today, you're gonna find links in the show notes. Yul Vasquez, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Jesse, you've been a pleasure, my friend. This has been an absolute, no, honestly, you've been, this has been, it's, it's been great, man. You've been super cool and uh, wow. and thank you. Well, thank you, man. You, you made me really happy today. Um, go out, enjoy the rest of the day. Best of luck with everything you're shooting, everything you're working on, and we will talk to you soon. Keep smiling. Thanks again to Yul for joining us. You can find his art at yulvasquez.com. This week's musical guest is the Los Angeles-based Andrew Reinhardt. Andrew's been active in both the Brooklyn and LA DIY scenes for the last 12 years. You can find his music on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. His latest EP, Have Fun Idiot, comes out Friday, August 6th. Here with a cover of Yoko Ono's Growing Pain is Andrew Reinhardt. Frozen by my mother's anger Anchored in the North Pole Sea On the Sphinx Stamped on a Hilton postcard Hoping to see the desert I'm a woman Without country state Opening her head To the universe A hundred thousand People in me Every day Yeah, they're growing Every day of a feeling He's an infant Blinded by his mother's sorrow From 
Thanks for listening. Subscribe to The Other Side of Darkness so you won't miss the story once it begins this fall. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a positive rating and review on your podcasting app. Follow Sign Peaks on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, or join our Facebook group. Visit our store at signpeaks.threadless.com. 50% of proceeds for the month of July will go to the International Rescue Committee. And if you'd like to support this series, you can visit patreon.com slash signpeaks to get early access to episodes and exclusive merchandise. Intro theme by Patrick Edwards. Show music by Cody McCory and Ivor Boitz. Outro theme by Robert McDonald. All links mentioned can be found in this episode's show notes. The Other Side of Darkness was made possible thanks to the backing of over 100 supporters through sites like kickstarter.com. Here are just a few of those supporters I'd like to recognize. Ann Bingson, John Phillips, Red Impala, Michael Pelache, C. Martinez, Dylan Escalante, Beth Marauder, and Wiley Frank. If you enjoy this podcast, you might also enjoy watching Owen Wilson, the first podcast dedicated entirely to everyone's favorite catchphrase-loving comedic actor. Hosts Jake Menez and Michael J. Teeter make their way through Owen Wilson's entire filmography, rating each movie, counting each well and bringing in guests in an effort to befriend Owen Wilson himself. Find Watching Owen Wilson on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and at watercooler.com. You can also listen to Mike Dowd, the voice of Kramer on this podcast, on his own podcast, Welcome to Twin Speaks. Here's Mike and co-host Janine with more. Hi, I'm Mike. And hello, I'm Janine. And this is Welcome to Twin Speaks. We are a bi-weekly podcast exploring the weird and wonderful world of David Lynch's master hit TV series, Twin Peaks. We will be going episode by episode, 
really discussing the legacy of Twin Peaks that it's left for television and pop culture that maybe you've never heard before. And if you're someone like me, who's actually seeing it for the very first time, um, I welcome you to dive in with me with no spoilers as we go along and I avoid all the Google researching in what's to come with fresh eyes and fresh ears and bask in the wonderfully weird. Yes. And if you've seen the show before, you can see it through the first time through Janine's eyes. It'll be like it'll be like you're watching Twin Peaks for the first time. So grab a cup of joe, grab some donuts and some cherry pie, and join us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Twin Speaks. The Other Side of Darkness is written, performed, and produced strictly as a work of parody. The Other Side of Darkness is not endorsed by Castle Rock Entertainment, Sony Pictures, NBC, Warner Brothers Records, Rhino Records, Lynch Frost Productions, Twin Peaks Productions, CBS, or Showtime. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Seinfeld, the Seinfeld logo, and all Seinfeld characters, story elements, and intellectual property are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders. The makers of The Other Side of Darkness make no claims directly or indirectly of ownership to any elements held by these trademark and or copyright holders other than original characters, story elements, and other intellectual properties created specifically by the makers of this podcast. Musical elements referencing themes and motifs from the original theme music to Seinfeld and Twin Peaks are created expressly as works of parody and do not imply claims to ownership of said music.